Just for a moment, imagine your community became another Ferguson, or Minneapolis, or Louisville, or any American community where police killed African Americans under questionable circumstances. How would you react? How would your city react? How would your government react? These are the questions that we will explore in the coming weeks in Color Lines, from Philip to Floyd, a podcast exploring the American tragedy of race, police shootings, and the search for justice. In 1990, the town of Teaneck, New Jersey, a community renowned as a national model of racial unity and peace, became embroiled in a confrontation over race and dignity and fairness after a white police officer shot and killed a black teenager. Riots broke out. The town engaged in an examination over its racial policies from the police department to the school system. Were the efforts of Teaneck, New Jersey, dating back to the 1950s to build racial harmony real? Why didn't those efforts prevent another tragedy of police killing an African-American under questionable circumstances. Journalist Mike Kelly's book, Color Lines, investigates Teaneck's history and what the shooting exposed about the racial dilemma that America faced then and continues to face today. Now, with Mike and some of the most prominent voices in civil rights and police reform, from U.S. Senator Cory Booker to Congresswoman Karen Bass to the Reverend Al Sharpton and others, we're looking back to try to find the best way to move forward. How did Teaneck change? Why didn't the lessons learned from the police shooting of Philip Pinnell in Teaneck teach America how to avoid the murder of George Floyd and others? Welcome. I'm Brittany Hanrahan with Upward Media Partners, and we're seeking the truth about a shooting of a black teenager that happened in Teaneck, New Jersey, almost 30 years ago. I'm here today with Mike Kelly. Mike, thank you so much for being here. Hi, Brittany. Thanks for having me. So, Mike, tell us, who are you? I'm a basic, you know, run-of-the-mill journalist, and I work at a newspaper in northern New Jersey. I've had the good fortune to report from all over the world, from Iraq to Northern Ireland, to Africa, to Cuba, to Southeast Asia. Uh, but in 1990, on an April night, uh, when I was relaxing at home, the news came home right to my doorstep, so to speak. And it was a real surprise to me uh, that I had to actually really confront some of the demons in my own hometown. And you have a long history of reporting some very serious topics. So what was it about this case that was so difficult to escape? Well, you know, Brittany, it was the mystery of it all. You know, one of the things that we look for as journalists, we try to look for certainty. We try to look for, you know, the concrete story that can tell us some measure of truth. And when I first confronted the shooting of Philip Pinnell, I, I looked at it and I said, why was this young man shot? Uh, shot to death, actually, shot in the back. Well, what was it about the town that I lived in that may have caused this shooting to take place? And, you know, the real serious racial bonfires that burned 
not just for a week or two, but for years afterwards. There are certain elements to that story that I still struggle with. Uh, why did the shooting take place? Why was this police officer on the street after he had such a questionable record of using his gun? Why was this young boy on the street with a gun? Um, and, and, and why did the town react the way it did? One of the most interesting aspects of the town I live in, Teaneck, New Jersey, is that it fancied itself as, as, a, as kind of a model for racial harmony. It was one of about a dozen towns around the United States that actively tried to create a kind of racial nirvana. And this goes back to the 1960s, the idealism of the 1960s, so to speak, long before I moved here. And people were trying to um, create this, this sentiment that Teaneck had figured it out. They figured out a way for black folks and white folks and people of all kinds of different ethnic groups and religious groups and other groups to just come together and live together in peace in a level of say, you know, kumbaya, so to speak. U.S. Senator Cory Booker and his family had a different experience in Bergen County, the same county that Teaneck is in. So I was in 1990 a, a student at Stanford University, so on the other side of the country. Um, but clearly, it was a incident that captured the nation's attention, and it was in a community that I know. Uh, I, I grew up uh, in Bergen County. My parents had a restaurant on Teaneck Road in the 80s, and um, clearly, it, it was something that was distressing uh, for me and. By the time a couple of years later that Rodney King happened, um, it was another uh, sort of culmination point of what felt like um, was happening just with chilling regularity in the United States of America. On a very personal level, I just want to say that, you know, I, my family, in order to move into Bergen County, into Harrington Park, New Jersey, had to get a white couple through the Fair Housing Council. They had white couples follow my parents around because they would be turned away from housing time and time again. And then the house that my parents fell in love with, they were told it was sold. The white couple found out it was still for sale. And on the day of the closing, um, the white couple didn't show up. My dad did. And a volunteer lawyer named Marty Friedman, who was then attacked by the real estate agent, punched in the face. And my dad had a dog sicked on him. And, and we ended up growing up in this home, as my dad affectionately called us, in a community where we were the four raisins in a tub of sweet vanilla ice cream. And it was a nurturing community. It was indeed some of the best public schools in America. But by the time I got to be the eighth grade and was very large, it was over six feet tall, I had elders in my community warning me, parent, my father, uncles, that I could not do the things that my white peers and friends did. And indeed, I started having encounters in malls, uh, being accused of stealing things. Um, and when I started driving, that's when it really became stunning to me that I was getting pulled over at rates that my white friends, peers, closest friends still to this day, just were not experiencing. It was a time that if you drove over the New York, uh, the Washington, the GWB, the George Washington Bridge, um, my brother and I would plan on being stopped uh, as we drove into the nice suburbs. And so I began to fear police. Um, uh, from the stern warnings of my parents. Uh, my, my friends would see me get nervous as anything around police officers and um, just worried that, uh, that um, I could have an incident. 
The Reverend Al Sharpton came to Teaneck to protest the shooting of Philip Pinnell. He talked to us a little bit about his experience in Teaneck. When I first heard of uh, what happened in Teaneck, uh, it was a little surprising to me because Teaneck had this uh, reputation as a bedroom harmonious community. Uh, I was living at that time in Brooklyn, New York. I later moved to Inglewood, New Jersey, but at that point, uh, I uh, was living in Brooklyn. And there were some members of our movement that lived in Teaneck, and we considered that the middle class kind of uh, step up. And when I heard that there had been a police shooting and some violence in Teaneck, that was incongruous with the T-neck that I had in my mind. And uh, I was as surprised that they say people were out marching and, and there was some rock throwing as I was the shooting, uh, because I thought that in T-neck they had this kind of neighborhood cop, everybody knew each other kind of image. And I, I thought the kids were more uh, middle class and uh, not rock throwers. So I was a little surprised at the entire environment that I was getting from the news. In the middle of that, uh, I got a call that they wanted us to become involved in TNEC. But my initial reaction, uh, which uh, led to uh, hours later when we were asked to come out there, was that this is different. This is not all of Bed-Stuy, Southside Chicago. This is TNEC. This is where it's laid back, bedroom community. Everybody knew each other. Philip Pinnell was shot over 30 years ago. We continue on our journey to find out who Philip was and why he was gunned down by the police. The shooting happened on, an, on, a, on a night of just around 5 o'clock uh, in April 1990. And where were you? I, I just arrived home from work, and I'd settled in, as I usually did, with my daughters and my wife. And we were just relaxing. And around a couple of hours into the night, I got a phone call from one of my colleagues. And they said, there's been a shooting in Teaneck. A, a police officer has shot an African-American teenager. Uh, and I thought to myself, my goodness, what's going on here? And what, in, what evolved over the next several hours was really shocking and yet mysterious at the same time. Because... I believed, like anybody else, that I lived in this perfect town where this kind of thing didn't happen. And we had these incidents already, in New mostly in New York City, where there have been confrontations between police officers and uh, black uh, men, mostly, and in some cases, black women. Uh, but we didn't. We believed that in Teaneck, New Jersey, we had figured out how to live together, and that this sort of thing wouldn't happen. And so, so began this journey that I, that I set out on. And in this journey, there are three important names that we should be looking out for. There's Philip Pinnell, Gary Spath, and Teaneck, New Jersey. So who are these three characters? Philip was a, the, the teenager who, black teenager who was shot to death. Gary Spath was the Teaneck police officer who pulled the trigger. And Teaneck, New Jersey was the third character in this saga. Teaneck was really the place that where this was not supposed to happen. And yet it did. 
And why was Philip Pennell shot? The night he was killed, Philip was carrying a gun. Uh, let me set the scene for you. Uh, just before dusk on, on April 10th, 1990, Philip was uh, in a walking with a group of friends and he was wearing a red parka and in his pocket, he was carrying a gun. Now, this is not the kind of gun that you and I might think of as a real gun. It was a hollowed out starter's pistol that was, uh, that was able to uh, uh, fire 22 caliber bullets. A starter's pistol for like a track meet. If you imagine yourself running in a track meet, we all have, we all have seen these where, where you know, the, the, the referee fires a starter's pistol. It usually fires blanks. In this case, uh, Philip was carrying one of these that had been hollowed out to be able to fire 22 caliber bullets. So it, it, it was able to fire lethal bullets. Was it a real gun? Yes, on some levels it was. On other levels it wasn't. Anyway, he was a 16-year-old kid. He was showing it to his friends. Uh, somebody in the, in the neighborhood where he happened to be in looked out their front door and saw him doing this and called the police. And within minutes, uh, two police officers rolled up uh, uh, on Philip and about a half a dozen or so of his friends. Uh, one of those police officers was Gary Spath. Philip is fairly young. You said, how old did he say he was? Sure, he's 16 years old. So why is a 16-year-old boy carrying a gun? Was he afraid of somebody? He sure was. He sure was. Philip was a member of a gang. Now, when I say a gang, it was a group of kids that were just basically uh, most all African-American kids who were, who were banned together. And what, what emerged in this research that I conducted over this was that Philip had joined a gang of fellow black kids to basically protect themselves from black gangs in neighboring towns. And the problem with Philip is that his family life had literally exploded in the weeks before he had been killed. And what had happened is his father had become a, had troubles with drugs and alcohol and lost his job. The family lost their house in Teaneck and they had to move to a neighboring town. In that neighboring town, Philip was kind of a marked guy because he was a member of a gang from Teaneck. And when he moved to this neighboring town of Englewood, the kids in Englewood immediately targeted him for abuse. So he was looking for a way to protect himself. So what did he do? He, he went to his mother's closet and he found a gun. Community activist and journalist Walter Fields gives us more perspective on who Philip Pinnell was and how the shooting affected his community. Well, you know, on the morning of April 11th, uh, 1990, um, I woke up preparing to go um, to New York because I was still in graduate school at the time at NYU. And I was disturbed by a report I heard on the radio of a young man being killed by a Teaneck police officer. So I immediately called uh, my NAACP contemporaries to find out what was going on and canceled my day that day and did not attend classes at NYU and headed over to Teaneck to find out what was going on. And from that day on, it became 
sort of one of my personal missions uh, to try to make sure that number one, an event like this never occurred again, and number two, to receive some justice for the Pinnell family uh, that I did not know at the time. Uh, they were strangers to me, uh, but the horrific details of Philip's death disturbed me greatly. Um, and starting on April 11th, 1990, I was intricately involved um, in this process uh, from trial to acquittal to current day, uh, still being very involved with the Pinnell family. From all the descriptions of his many friends um, and from his family members and from some of his former teachers, you know, Philip was like any other 16 year old boy, uh, very active, um, always uh, in a jovial and good mood, a good student. Um, and according to his families, he did have some concerns about being bullied in school. Uh, but Philip was just your average teenage boy. And I think that's one of the things that really um, disturbed me when I learned more about this shooting. Uh, because when I saw Philip, um, I saw him in his coffin um, at his wake. And who I saw lying in that coffin looked like a 12-year-old boy. He was a very boyish 16-year-old. And so I couldn't understand how this young man could have been a threat to anyone particularly trained police officers. Mr. Fields continues on to explain how the shooting played a major part in police violence in the 90s. Well, Philip's shooting was really uh, probably the first high-profile um, case in this country. You have to remember, when you go back to 1990, um, while these incidents had occurred in the past, it was Philip's death that really brought national attention to this issue of police violence. You know, we were overwhelmed by national and international media at the time of, of Phillips' killing. And I think it was the first time in this country that people began to really sense that we have a serious problem when you have a 16-year-old child who is shot in the back uh, by local police officers. And so I think Phillips' death has framed every police incident going forward because there are certain characteristics around Philip's death that we see in every one of these incidents that follow. For example, uh, the victim is often portrayed as violent or being a thug. That's what happened to Philip. We see how police align themselves on this shooting. You know, in the Pinnell case, we had the local PBA and officers from around the country march on us during this incident. That was unprecedented. And I was at that rally that day and it was like a Ku Klux Klan rally. You know, another characteristic is how the media portrays victims, black victims of police violence. We had an incident where the local newspaper, which ironically later I became a columnist for, the record newspaper, had published a mugshot of Philip because he had gotten to some trouble as a juvenile. And instead of just using a photo of Philip Pinnell, they used a mugshot. So, you know, Philip's death really set the frame for every incident that followed it, including the challenge of getting an indictment of a police officer. And we had an unprecedented situation where we had two grand juries convened because the first autopsy of Philip's body was botched and the governor 
and the attorney general. They demanded a second grand jury be convened and we got an indictment. But then we had what happened in so many of these cases. We, despite all the evidence on the table, we had an acquittal by an all white jury in Bergen County. So I think Phillips death, which is often forgotten now when you hear reports about police brutality across the country, Phillips death is really a turning point in terms of us coming to some understanding about the obstacles we face in pursuing justice in these matters. The Reverend Al Sharpton takes us back to Teaneck, New Jersey, a community of multiculturalism and close to no violence whatsoever. But all that was about to change. What I saw was uh, the same kind of distrust uh, and the same kind of uh, people yelling at each other, not listening to each other, that I saw in many of the uh, situations that I'd seen in, in Brooklyn and Chicago and others. And I was taken back aback that there was no relaxed, laid back kind of situation at all. Uh, people were at each other's throats. Uh, on one side, uh, the police were totally defensive and didn't want to hear anything about uh, Garish Bath could have been wrong. On the other side, the black community wanted revenge and didn't want to hear anything about how do we find some common ground. Uh, it was the absolute same kind of emotions and hostilities just transferred into a bedroom community. I think that the, uh, the whole I would say the whole covering, the framing, the branding of TNET was uh, probably true at certain level for certain uh, people, black and white, that had made certain achievements uh, and had fought and worked hard to get to the bedroom community. But the people on the ground, uh, the kids that went to the school, uh, the cop that walked the beat, the small businessman and his kids, they lived a different reality than the people that had the nice home. So I think that we got the image of the accomplished parts of T-Day, but not the people on the ground. It's almost like if you were going to give a picture to the world of New York City, if you showed Fifth Avenue and Park Avenue and, and, and the... Uh, uh, high-rise penthouses and not show the Harlems or even the Queens working-class community. You haven't lied about the skyscrapers. They are there. You haven't lied about Fifth Avenue. It is there. It's just not the total picture. And I think that the idea of a bedroom community racial harmony was not untrue to certain to a certain ilk in T-neck. It just wasn't the whole picture. The Reverend Al Sharpton takes us back to a time when he marched through Teaneck with protesters and how that was different from his marches in Bensonhurst in Brooklyn. Yeah, it was. You have to remember, around Teaneck happened not long after we had had the, the racial killing of Michael Griffith and Howard B. And around the same time, it was parallel with the uh, Yusef Hawkins killing in Bensonhurst. So the marches in both Howard Beach and in Bensonhurst were very, very hostile race tent where we would have uh, a few hundred of us march, police would have to guard us, 
and whites would taunt us with watermelons and the N-word, and it was just openly, you'd have thought we was in Mississippi, in both the Yusuf Hawkins movement and in the uh, movement in uh, terms of Michael Griffith and Howard B. TNET, as far as I can remember, I had two tensions. One, I was saying, well, I don't think that whites are going to be as hostile. They're going to be pro-cop, but I don't think they're going to throw a banana at us like we were facing in Bensonhurst. The other concern is, unlike Howard Beach and unlike Bensonhurst, we had not trained the marching. And we were concerned that some of the youngsters that had thrown rocks the first couple of nights may be in the march and have a violent reaction that we get blamed for. So I'm watching the sidewalks to see how the whites and teenagers are going to react because I'm still ducking rocks in Bensonhurst. And I'm watching the crowd behind me talking to our team to make sure that one kid doesn't throw one rock because one rock thrown and the newspapers were going to say, Reverend Al came out and led a violent march. So I was like very tense with those marches. But at the same time, I felt we had an obligation to respond to the request to come. And I felt that Philip Pennell was unjustifiably killed. So your commitment overrides your apprehension. But I had apprehensions and concerns on both sides. Civil rights lawyer DeWitt Lacey has been successful in many wrongful death cases involving the police. He's had settlements for millions and millions of dollars. He understands the ins and outs of the courtroom. But one thing he can understand is why does this continue to persist? My name is DeWitt Lacey. I am a civil rights attorney uh, here in California. I'm currently in Beverly Hills, uh, but I've been practicing civil rights law for the past 13 years uh, and, uh, with the law offices of John Burris. Um, so mainly what we do uh, is uh, we represent folks uh, who have either themselves been the victims or their family members have been the victims of police brutality and or misconduct. Uh, and that ranges a gamut from, um, you know, wrongful arrests, um, where there might be an excessive use of force. Uh, it may even involve a deadly force uh, and or wrongful death claims. Um, but, you know, it's definitely uh, been, a, I think, a broad range uh, in our practice. Um, and, um, you know, we've been doing that for some time. This office has been around for over 45 years. Uh, it started by John Burris, uh, who was the attorney in the Rodney King uh, case. Have things improved um, between the African-American community uh, and law enforcement? You know, since uh, my practice, I will say, you know, socially, I'm not too sure, okay? You know, there are still some very problematic practices in law enforcement communities around the nation. And the stories that we hear in California are the same stories that everyone hears in Atlanta, in New Jersey, in New York, uh, which lets us know that it's a national problem and it's not just regional, right? Well, it's not just a bad apple. It is uh, policing in general. Now, how they relate to each other, that is the police community or the law enforcement community and the African-American community. I think if there's anything that has changed, 
It is the public's understanding and awareness of the gravity and magnitude of the problem. Whereas I think earlier on in my career, I think the general attitude was, look, that's, those are things that happened in the past or you know, down south, but that doesn't happen here, right? And folks were very reluctant to believe that law enforcement would behave poorly and or in a, in a, a bad and, and unlawful way. Rodney King was really, a, I guess, kind of a, uh, an eye-opening experience for the nation. Uh, and that, what, that happened when I was a teenager. You know, I was in, I was in high school when that happened. Uh, but since I've been practicing, certainly I've noticed some changes in, in local policies. Absolutely. Uh, the uh, Oakland Police Department has come under federal receivership, and, and they've had uh, some watchful eyes on them to make sure they meet these standards of change that have been applied to them. You know, uh, there are definitely some changes in uh, some of the use of force. LAPD doesn't even use the carotid restraint anymore. Uh, so there are changes like that. And, and um, those definitely, I think, come from litigation like this, the, the type that we're engaged in. When, when I win a case, it is civil judgment. It is not the criminal context. So part of, and, and I'll expand a little bit here, you know, a lot of times when I talk to clients initially, you know, part of what I want to find out is what do they want me to do? You know, I ask them if I had a magic wand uh, and I could wave my magic wand, what would you have me do and what would you have me change? And a lot of times what they say is they want those officers held accountable for either beating that person uh, directly or killing a loved one. Um, and, you know, we can try. We certainly do write letters to the attorney general's office. We certainly do write letters to the Department of Justice. That is the United States Department of Justice at times. Uh, we certainly do uh, try to help apply pressure on the local district attorney or the state attorney to actually uh, give a thoughtful investigation into the use of force. But many a times that uh, has been unsuccessful until here recently, uh, where you've seen a lot more uh, state attorneys being willing uh, to prosecute. One of the first cases that I ever saw being criminally prosecuted was that of Oscar Grants in Oakland, California, of course. And that is, you know, done by the prosecuting district attorney. Uh, so we don't necessarily have the power to do that. But of course, the influence of a civil lawsuit can make that come about. And I think you saw the same thing here recently in the George Floyd suit. Senator Cory Booker takes us back to when he was marching in Palo Alto for the Rodney King trial. At a young age, the senator knew that the change he wanted to make would be at the federal level. When we were marching in, in uh, Palo Alto, uh, after the verdict uh, around the Rodney King case, I had this bravado of a young 20-something that, that we were going to end this nightmare, that we were going to end this reality that uh, black adults had to teach black children uh, survival mechanisms against uh, folks that were swirls to protect us. And so for me, after George Floyd, I remember sharing a very real emotion with black men who were my age when we sort of had this dawning realization that 30 years passed and we were continuing this wretched, awful tradition of teaching survival techniques to black boys in our lives. And so this is very motivating to me. I feel like a generation has passed and we are still telling our children these 
these survival techniques, but more than that, we're still being reminded that we haven't ended this nightmare in, in our country. And, and, and yet I'm a United States Senator and um, Senator Harris, then Senator Harris, now Vice President Harris and I really felt determined um, to pass some, some substantive reform that could begin to end, um, uh, end this reality in America, joined with people in the House of Representatives uh, from Karen Bass to the chairman of the Judiciary Committee, Nadler. And we all went to work on developing a bill that we thought would create real accountability. Um, uh, that bill ultimately was not successful in the last Congress, but it just passed the House of Representatives in this Congress. And I'm at work in the Senate with colleagues across the aisle to see if we can come to some kind of accord to pass a bill that will help um, save lives and protect people and create more transparency and accountability overall in policing. In the coming weeks, we'll trace the T-Neck story in all its nuances and troubling questions. But we'll also leap forward to the present day to examine how the lessons of T-Neck can help America move forward today.